Well, good morning. Welcome to Eastlake. Uh, welcome back from a couple weeks off. Hopefully you enjoyed your Christmas break. We're starting a brand new series today, so if this is your first time to Eastlake, you picked a great day to come check us out. Uh, a series on minimalism, uh, doing with less, or it just feels like a good natural time of the year uh, to talk about this kind of stuff because you're probably already doing some of it on some level anyways. Um, I know for me, uh, during the laziest week of the year, which is that week between Christmas and New Year's, um, I felt like probably some of you like, man, I should... I should be productive and do something. So I finally addressed the fact that um, my closet has got, like, I, I'm, always, <coughs> I'm always stealing hangers from my wife when she's not looking because I'm out of hangers because uh, I've got so, much, so many clothes. And, and I, I thought, uh, and I don't even have that many clothes. I just don't have enough hangers, I guess, is about the problem. Anyways, um, I thought, you know what, i got to do something about this. But it's just, there's never a good time. In the summertime, it's just, you know, you're busy, you're doing stuff, and so... Just like that weird, cool, awesome, it's dark at, what, 2 o'clock in the afternoon now or something like that? Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I'm, I, I, one day this week, or the last, the last week I decided, I'm cleaning this out. I filled up two bags of, uh, of, of clothes that I'm going to be getting. I knew I was talking about minimalism, and I'm like, I can't be doing this, and then all, all of a sudden, like, fighting in my closet. So anyways, two bags. You guys, you can take that off the screen. They don't need to see my dirty trunk that I need to clean out. <clears throat> I'll get to that next year, maybe, or something like that. Um, and uh, so I, I, I'm not a hanger thief anymore, guys. It's really great. It's been awesome. It's been a good feeling. And I think part of it for me, I, I feel like I do this every year because I think I'm coming out of, like, the hyper-consumerism of Christmas, and I'm realizing, like, we just went through the season where it's like, get, 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 you know, and just stuff, and you're buying all kinds of stuff. And you're buying stuff for other people, but it also feels good to buy stuff, too. So um, all of that, and then you get out of it, and you're like, you know, uh, then you got a credit card bill in the mail, and you're like, we've got to move on from that. But also, it would feel good to just do like with less. I don't, I don't need all this stuff. And you've gone through seasons like that for sure, where you say, I'm never going to wear that again, um, either because your sense of fashion has progressed or because your pant size has progressed. One of those two <laughs> things happened, uh, and so you get rid of it in that way. We are more attuned in this season than any other time of the year to experience the appeal of living with a deep sense of minimalism. The new year, new you, all kinds of stuff comes out, uh, uh, New Year's resolutions, uh, there's going to be simplicity in your schedule now, simplicity in your diet, simplicity in your spending. Somebody may even have picked up a book for you, or... Uh, you turned on Netflix and found a show called Tidying Up with Marie Kondo, or you picked up her book called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up by Marie Kondo. If the book looks familiar, it's because it was on sale at Costco for like three years um, because it's been a multi-million dollar bestseller, six million copies, uh, at least 70-something odd weeks on uh, the New York Times bestseller list. And pretty famous in the, in the world of minimalism. Uh, in fact, if you type in that, she's going to be the first one that comes up for you because her platform has been so recent and it's so um, amazing. And she's got this, I'll just save you some time from, from reading the book. Um, here's what you do. You put things in piles, five different piles of different things, and then you hold it in your, in your hand and you look at it and you like become attuned to this thing. And, and does it? Sp- this is the question you ask yourself. Does this spark joy in my life? And if it doesn't, see ya. It's gone. You throw it away. So you only, you only keep the things that spark joy. And so everything else, all you're left with is just video games. Like that's all you have in your whole house <laughs> is video games. And uh, that's, that's basically the essence of the book. Now you could go read it for yourself, but if you, um, 
Go to midcolumbialibraries.com. They've got 14 copies that are all sold out. But the good news is they have ebooks. but there's 12 of those, but they're all sold out. You get on a waiting list, and you're only five people deep for that. So it seems to be a very popular um, topic, and the book came out several years ago. So, uh, And there, there's a, a uh, Christian subculture version of this. Jen Hatmaker wrote a book called Seven, The Seven Project a few years back. And in that, she said her and her husband and her family went through a, a season where for seven months, every month they did one thing that had to do the seven. So we're going to eat only um, in, seven ingredients for the entire month. Or for this month, we're, only, we're going to pick seven clo- pieces of clothing, and that's what we're going to wear. So Tuesday is, uh, you know, the red shirt day, and Wednesday is the next, you know, whatever. And you just cycle through those, and you just learn the art of living with a sense of minimalism. It seems to be a priority even in our culture, not just in like, okay, this isn't, I'm not taking this from an angle of, hey, guys, <clears throat> this is something that you're not going to understand. It's a Christian way of doing things and blah, blah, blah. This seems to be something that we can get on board with no matter what. It's part of reaction to the excesses of consumerism. But there's also like this like spiritual, personal element too. It almost feels up, and it's sold as when you can begin to consolidate your stuff, you become more in tune and in touch with who you really are and what you want to do uh, with your life. The idea across platforms has been this. Doing with less should help us to find more. When I have less, I'm more open to what? Investing into my kids and my family, having uh, more resilient marriages, less pressure, less stress, a greater sense of spiritual purpose. And in a world where TV preachers are constantly telling you that you deserve more and God wants you to have more, the Christian historical method has been actually sometimes less is more. That this lines up, that this is not, uh, Marie Kondo did not come up with this model. This has been a part of the Christian heritage for a long time of living with less seems to be uh, a pretty decent way of doing life, which should be appealing for somebody like me, right? Because I would look at this and be like, you watch this, or I had so many people, um, mostly women, come up after first service and be like, oh, Marie Kondo, I love her, all this kind of stuff, right? Uh, you love the idea of living with less. You love the idea of not having to put so much you know, hope and stuff that all stuff, owning stuff isn't all that it's cracked up to be. And scripture teaches that too. Like this seems like it's kind of in line with all of this. Um, one of the most uh, interesting things in terms of tying it into historic Christianity comes to us from an extra biblical person. So not in the Bible, this happened a couple hundred years after this, but in, in the fourth century AD, there was a, a guy named Anthony of Alexandria, or Anthony of Egypt, if you Google him or Wikipedia him, or if you have notes, <clears throat> if you um, type the word notes into your phone or get that text message thing, um, I included the Wikipedia page for this as well as a great New York Times article on Marie Kondo. Anyways, um, his story is interesting because if you have ever daydreamed about inheriting your parents' wealth before they spent it all on their retirement, don't admit to that, by the way, first of all. Um, that causes conflict at Thanksgiving. Uh, but if you've ever been like, boy, I wonder what that would look and feel like, because that sounds pretty amazing. Um, he actually got to experience that and live that. His parents were wealthy landowners in Egypt. They passed away when he was 18. He inherited it all. He was one of those guys who you hear about who inherits great wealth, and the message, the tagline that goes along with it is always, he'll never have to work a day in his life, right? Either they win the lotto, they win the Powerball, they'll never have to work a day in their life. Um, they can live off the interest and, and live all these, whatever. Anyways, he had all of this. And yet he's a Christian. And so in his sort of discipleship and learning what it means to practice the way of Jesus, he reads 
uh, a, a passage that we're probably all familiar with. It shows up in all of the different, go- I think in all four, maybe just three, but all, I, many of the gospel uh, stories about the person and teaching of Jesus. And this one, this version that I'm going to present to you today comes from Luke chapter 18. It has to do with this rich young ruler who approaches Jesus, who's got his kind of life in order. He is, in, in, in terms of like the outlook of perspective from everybody else, winning at life. He comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, what do I got to do to not only be winning at this life, but also be winning at whatever comes next? What do I got to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, uh, follow the commandments of the prophets and, and you'll, you'll experience that. And he goes, I've done it. He, he, he had, according to his statements, his behavior has matched up with those beliefs. Like he says it and it doesn't seem to be like a few crowd members in the audience going, I mean, come on, really? Are you sure? He says, I've done all of those things. <clears throat> so Jesus says, fantastic. He follows it up with this. You still lack one thing. This is Jesus talking to this rich young ruler guy. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, the rich young ruler, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? How difficult it is for them to get their mindset. And this wasn't kingdom of God, a place that you go when you die. This was how difficult it is for somebody who is so engrossed in their wealth and in their stuff that they fail to take into account how I can be a part of creating a heaven on earth, doing on earth like as it is in the Lord's Prayer, on earth as it already is in heaven, entering into the mindset of what it would be to be in the Christian or into the kingdom of heaven. This, is, this ties into uh, that similar phrase that you've probably heard of uh, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Um, and the word money there is actually uh, better translated as wealth, which can include money, but it can also include just stuff, like all your things. So what he's saying here is that love of stuff, that love of wealth, that love of look at me, all of the things that I would put out there as, uh, as pictures of the kind of life that I have lived or the value or how much value I have, whether I can look at my balance sheet or my portfolio on my phone or whether when I open up my garage and I see all my stuff there and all my toys and I feel better about myself because of all that, <clears throat> for the love of that kind of stuff, for the obsession over that kind of stuff is the root of all kinds of evil. You're so fearful of losing all that stuff that you'll do anything that it takes to keep that stuff or continue to maintain the progression of adding and acquiring more to add to that list of things that I have. So Anthony reads this. He inherits great wealth, and, and he's probably living with a sense of guilt of, I didn't really earn this. I mean, it's my parents. It's in, in me. And then he reads this, and so then what he does is he gives his things away to his neighbors and to his friends, and whatever's left over, he sells it, gives it to the poor, he buys a Vita bus, saves enough money for that, and drives it into the desert and lives in the desert. Vita bus is an addition by me. It just feels like it goes with the story, all right? He becomes what's known as a Christian ascetic, A-S-C-E-T-I-C. Asceticism, I am choosing to live without so that I can go and experience forced or self-initiated minimalism. I want, and and by his own account, I want to do this to go closer to God or grow closer in my dedication. And we we see it uh, later played out in terms of monasteries 
uh, monks go into monasteries and they renounce that life, or nuns go into to convents and they renounce all of that kind of living for a, a more simplified, I'm going to focus on this kind of stuff, right? He reads this passage and is so convicted, this is what he chooses for himself. Now, <clears throat> you and I have read this passage before, or somebody in my position has talked about this passage before, and you look at Anthony, or you think, and, you're, and you hear about his story and what he did, and you're like, oh, 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 Anthony, Jesus was being metaphorical there. You missed it. Oh, man, how embarrassing. Like, could you go back and ask for it back? I know that that's awkward. Maybe don't do that to the poor people, but maybe you could go to your friends and neighbors and be like, I'm so sorry. I don't know what came into me. I was off my meds for like a week there, and I gave all my stuff. Wasn't that ridiculous? So I'm going to need that back, right? I just found out that somebody told me that Jesus was being metaphorical there. Anyways, he takes it very, very literally in this way. He goes off and begins to start this life in the desert. Now, other people hear about his story. Obviously, in a story, a story like that of wealth and power being dispersed in that way, that story is going to get around. And it does, and people are inspired by that, by his character or whatever. But also, there's some persecution happening in Egypt amongst Christianity. So other people begin to flee into the desert and join him. This slowly becomes, this adds on and adds on, and there's something about that way of life. They begin writing. They became famous, uh, known as the Desert Fathers. In their writings, it's all about Christian asceticism. It's all about doing with less. It's about minimalism. So it'd be hard to do a series on minimalism and not talk about the Desert Fathers because they lived this out. They took Jesus seriously when he said, sell your stuff, give it to the poor, live minimalistically. And so they go do this, and it begins to grow, and it begins to grow, and it's super appealing to these people in this way. The barren landscape of the desert was a fitting backdrop for their ascetic lifestyle, where they could have little to distract them from their worship of their God. And we get it. Like, we understand it. We see it. We can respect that, too. Like, we hear about people renouncing things for their own personal thing, and especially when they're not preachy at me. Especially when they do it and, and they're like, hey, it's not for everybody, it is for me. I can sit there and go, I, I get it. Like, I totally, I can value that. And I need to figure out what that looks like for me. But I lean more towards a proverbial prayer that shows up in Proverbs chapter 30. It's one I've preached before, talked about before. And here's what it says. This is a, this comes from the book of Proverbs which is like generally good instructions for life. That's what the Jewish people figured on, right? They're like, it was an instruction manual for every dad and mom to be able to raise their kids in a God-fearing, Yahweh-fearing way. Good principles for living. Here's what he says in verse eight of chapter 30. Two things, or seven, excuse me. Two things I ask of you, Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Number one, keep falsehood and lies far from me. In other words, if I, if I know them to be falsehood and lies, then I can reject them. I, can, I, I, I know how to keep myself away from that. But I need you to keep some of these away from me because there are things that I know I have in my life that are flaws that probably the people closest to me know about, but because I have blind spots, I don't get to see them. And I know that it exists for me because I can see them very clearly in the lives of all of the other people that I mix and mingle with. They don't know how they're flawed, and I've tried to tell them, but it's awkward, and I'll be like, whatever, you just do you. And it would be silly for me to say, that's, their, that's a problem that they deal with and not one that I deal with. This is a prayer of 
God, I can only control so much. Keep these things, keep falsehood and lies far from me. <clears throat> give me, and then this is number two, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord in terms of like, why would I need God? I've got all the things that I need. Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me my daily bread. Not too much, but definitely not a little. Hey, don't need a mansion. I don't need to live on a, by the river. But like a house with uh, air conditioning would be pretty nice. So if you could definitely make that happen, I really need a three-car garage. Could get away with two if, it, <clears throat> if I had to. But that's what I need. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Now, <clears throat> fast forward now to the 21st century. We've amassed more wealth now than ever before in human history. And we have vastly more options to spend our wealth on. You and I both had to play Tetris over the last week as we put our Christmas stuff away, didn't we? You look at it and you're like, it's so fun getting it out. It's so painful getting it back in because you look at it and you go, how did this ever fit in our garage? I don't understand how this works. You're moving boxes around. You got stuff in the attic. You got things going on. And then your wife comes to you and says, did you know that Target is having a 90% off (laughs) post-Christmas sale? And you look at her and you say, babe, we can't afford it. And she's like, 90% off. And I said, it's not the money. I'm talking, we can't afford the space. There's no place to put this kind of stuff. Enter the minimalists. Their message seems to be a a message that the Desert Fathers could definitely get behind. A message that for whatever path, maybe there's a, uh, I had some people come up after first service and talk about how they took an online course on decluttering, right? That's a very popular clickbait thing right now. Declutter your life. What's the message behind it all? Your abundant possessions are distracting you from true joy and fulfillment. So get rid of them. So at this point, all I've done is talk about Americano and, and Desert Fathers and saying we're very much on the same page in this way. Like, it doesn't matter if you're religious or non-religious. I feel like this is something you can get behind and be like, yeah, I've got, I could probably grow in this area, which is awesome. A couple of words of caution. So what is the difference then? Should, should you just give that book out? Should we just <laughs> preach from Americano's book instead of the Bible? <clears throat> no. <coughs> um, difference, excuse me. Uh, for secular minimalists, minimalism isn't simply about having a simple organized home, although, of course, that's a nice fringe benefit. It goes a little bit deeper than that. From her book, Marie Kondo writes this, putting your house in order will help you find the mission that speaks to your heart. Life truly begins after you've put your house in order. It's very vague, very whatever works for you. It's self-actualization at its best, which our culture is really, really good at. You have the freedom to be you. Like, choose what works for you, whatever makes you feel good, and just crush it in that area. And they know we are in agreement about what the problem is. The problem is excessive consumerism. The problem is obsessiveness over our wealth. The solution is different because the solution from a secular minimalistic sort of style is, well, here's what you're going to get out of it. You're going to get a greater sense of inner peace, more time with friends and family, greater personal creativity, all of these things and more. And for the Desert Fathers, you'd be like, I mean, fringe benefits maybe, but that's not why we did this. We didn't do this for that. I didn't do this so I could get better in touch with my inner self, because here's what I know about my inner self. I am prone 
to lies and self-delusion. Because Proverbs 30, verse 7 says, God, I'm asking you to keep a couple things far from me. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. And not only that, like, it feels like uh, in the terms of secular minimalism, it feels like, all right, I'm going to pull away from this excess of stuff, from obsessiveness over wealth, and what I keep behind is now, like, when I, when, I, when I go through the process of does this spark joy, then what happens is I've got a few things in my life now, not, not as many as I used to have, but a few things, and these really do define me. And, I, and, and we can't help but, like, get excited about those things and, and publicize them or live them out publicly or put these on and be like, clean out my closet, guys, hashtag minimalism. And I, I did all of these things and look at my clean house. I have nothing in this house but a few short things. And what happens is we, we intuitively know that these few things define us now. If you've ever played that like um, imaginative game of if you were stranded on a deserted island, what one thing would you have? Or what one book would you take with you? Or whatever, right? Of all the different options, you know that the one that you choose says something about you. In the same way, we live with a sense of, if I choose to go the path of minimalism, which I think you should do, absolutely, religious, non-religious, just know there's going to be a temptation to say, what I keep says a lot about me. I'm, I'm curating myself. I'm like, a, I'm like a museum. This is what's most important to me. I, I've gone through my list of things, and I've said, does this spark joy? It doesn't. It doesn't. I, and, and I'm, I'm, everything that we do at that point and everything that we hang on to is performative. It's all performative. It's for other people. I'm telling a story about me, which would be so anti what these desert fathers were about and what Christian asceticism truly is about. When third century tourists travel out to the desert to gawk at the increasingly and growing famous desert fathers, they would retreat even further and deeper into the desert for they fear the sin of pride above all. They were careful not to take pride in the practice of minimalism itself. Because there's the danger, man. The danger is I've traded in obsessive wealth and all I've done is received a greater sense of vanity or couched in terms like self-worth, but really pride, ego. Here's what I want you to think about me in that way. Listen, we don't need to flee the desert to follow their example. We can have our deserts in the crowded places where we live and where we work. The desert is really just an abandonment of our ego and anything else that might give us a fake sense of security. Surrender for the sake of faithful service to God. So yes, do I want you to do this? Yes, I want us, for a little while at least, to practice the way of Jesus and there's no way that you could read through the gospel accounts, the life and the teaching of Jesus and not have him speak to some level of minimalism. When he sends out his disciples um, uh, for this mission thing, he sends them out with just the clothes on their back. You don't take anything else with you. Learn what it means to trust in this way. Don't forget, if you're rich, right, um, in this world's wealth, to be generous and kind. Um, don't forget to not put your trust and your hope in this world's wealth. Don't forget that your, your, your heart is tied to your stuff. Um, don't, for, don't forget that um, the, the, the obsession over wealth is the root of all kinds of evil. Like, there's no way you could get past it and not catch some of this. So yeah, I want us to practice it. But when I do it, I want to make sure that we're doing it from the Christian side of things, that we're not just trading consumerism for vanity. 
that we understand that I'm doing this, the motivation behind this is because I want to grow in a greater sense of dependence on you, Heavenly Father. Now, I also came across a fantastic quote by a guy named George McDonald this week to kind of close this whole thing out. He writes this, however strange it may well seem, to do one's duty will make anyone conceited who only does it sometimes. Meaning this, what I'm asking you to do, I feel like is a duty, this, like living with a sense of minimalism is part of the duty of Christ. Now, are we going to go through a season where we're going to focus on it? Yes. But I think if you only do this in January, that also feeds into that vanity. It also feeds into that look at me as I do this thing. If you've ever had a kid, one of your kids come to you and be like, Dad, I cleaned my room. You'd be like, great, you're the one that made the mess. Why should I reward you for doing the thing that I'm expecting you to actually do? Dad, I made my bed. Yeah, you slept in it. What do you want? What, you want a cookie? Right? That's Chris Rock line for his stand-up thing. Like, I, I don't think that when you do this, not out of a sense of duty, but out of a sense of, look at what I'm doing. Look at what I've done. Like, you're missing out on it until our duty becomes to us as common as breathing. We are poor creatures. Until we live like this, until we live with a deep sense of minimalism, not that we're inherently poor, we pride ourselves on being poor, give us neither riches nor poverty, I don't want to go in either direction, I don't want to be tied to my stuff. So there may be scenes I got to clean this kind of stuff out, I got to, I got to get down, I got to eliminate some debt, I got to do the whole Dave Ramsey, whatever, I, I get it, I understand. <clears throat> Just be careful to make it a pattern, because if you don't, then you're going to feel, it's going to feel a little bit like, God, look at me, aren't you proud of me? Look at what I've done. And he's going, oh, I shouldn't have to reward you for doing the thing that I've called you to do in the first place. By the way, it's not a level of righteousness. It's not a level of, if I do this, God's going to be pleased with me. He's trying to tell us, this is the best way to live. Do it in this way. When you do this, you will not prioritize things over people. Because if you live with a hyper excess of consumerism, things will become more important to you than people. And you will miss out on it. And you will look at it and you will say, does this bring me joy? And it's all going to be stuff. Instead of looking at the people around you and your friends and your family and be like, does this bring me joy? I don't want you to miss it. And I don't want to do it out of a sense of obligation. I want to do it out of a sense of duty and response to Christ's teaching that this is the absolute best way to live. So, in the next couple of weeks, if you'll come back, we will talk about what it will look like to live with a deep sense of minimalism. So let's pray. Father, <clears throat> we ask that you would help us this week as we go back into the natural rhythms of work and life and school and all the kind of things that take place in that way. And there's going to be a natural bent from a secular drive to live with a more disciplined approach to our diet, to workouts, to this, that, and the other thing, and be minimalistic in so many different areas. I pray that you would help that not to fade, that we would continue to do it, but as we do it, that we don't feel compelled to live our lives on display as if this is some great feat that we're achieving, instead of just a response to the way that you said is the best way to live. So give us the wisdom to know what that looks like in our life. Courage to act on it in your name. Amen.